people at Deconstruct, generally speaking, were deeper in the belly of beasts than the average person in church. And so these myths, like, oh, they were never really saved anyway, they're, they're very tired excuses and they don't really measure up with any of the data. Welcome to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Welcome to Dismantle Podcast, a place for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. On this show, we attempt to dismantle an issue that poses as problematic for the church by having a discussion with a guest who has insight or experience with the subject. We're not always going to agree, and that's okay, but we're not going to argue because our goal is to build bridges and not barriers. Our guest today is Phil Drysdale. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited we got to connect, man. Thank you for saying yes and agreeing to do this. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited. It's, a, it's an honor for sure. So Phil, before we dive into our conversation, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and some of the work that you do. Sure. So um, my name is Phil. I'm based over in the UK. Um, I help people that are going on radical shifts of faith. And so um, that comes under a lot of different terms over the years. Those terms have changed and, and morphed. A common one these days that's thrown around is deconstruction. So I help a lot of people that are deconstructing their faith. Some people go with de- uh, disaffiliated, uh, dechurched, all sorts of different terms. They all kind of cover slightly different things that overlap in some ways and shapes, but uh, often uh, we're talking a similar process of radically challenging what your core values are about faith and finding that maybe they don't hold up and having to change some of them and and grow and evolve in in what you believe spiritually. Um, And that's a very unsettling process. It's a very scary process. Um, It can mix everything up in your life, you know, who you are, what you're about, why you do what you do, uh, your relationships with your friends, with your family, with church, uh, all sorts of things get thrown up in the air. Even your concept of God and your relationship with God can be thrown up in the air. And so um, it's a very hard process for people to go through. And so I, um, yeah, I work to make that process a little less hard, um, hopefully a little easier, something that um, uh, becomes a bit more navigatable. <laughs> navigatable is that a word? We'll go with it. Um, but yeah, something that becomes a little bit easier to navigate. Um, that's my goal. Uh, I don't know how well I do. Uh, I do know I manage on some, some, for some people. Some people give me some good feedback and say, hey, that really helped. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that's what I'm about. And, and I do that in a whole host of different ways. I uh, run a network that helps people connect with each other locally that are going through similar processes. Um, I run an online community. I put out lots of resources. Um, I conduct research alongside a research company here in the UK on people that are deconstructing to try and get a better idea of who are these people that are deconstructing. Because it's a big buzzword right now. You'll hear from Everyone and their mom wants to tell you what deconstruction means. And so you'll hear pastors and uh, leaders of big movements go, oh, this is what deconstruction is, and this is how you should do it, and this is how it shouldn't be done. Um, But across the board, most people don't even know what deconstruction is. Most people, even deconstructing, would give you up, they'd have a hard time describing what deconstruction is. And so yeah, it's an interesting one. So we're, we're trying to research that a bit more and give a bit more clear data on who does deconstruct, why do they deconstruct, what does deconstruction look like, how does it end up for a lot of people and things like that. So that's who I am. That's what I'm about, um, at least right now. We'll see how that goes. Um, but I've been doing that for about 10 years now. Fantastic. And it's a great setup for some of the conversation we're going to have. And you alluded to it already, but I want to repeat it, that a lot of people don't really know or can't quantify or describe exactly what deconstruction is. 
And so today on the show, we want to do a little bit more of an analysis. Mm. Many people today are discussing that theme of deconstruction. It's a common discussion point within faith communities. But if you were to hard press somebody for a definition, many people are going to give many different answers. So, Phil, what is usually the first common subject or topic in your experience that people begin with when they start their deconstruction journey? Sure. Like, what's the motivator that actually begins this journey? So there's a whole host of different things that can spark deconstruction. So when we talk about deconstruction, what deconstruction is, is questioning one's core values around your your faith tradition. So the, the tradition of faith that you grew up in, it might be that you grew up Christian or Southern Baptist within a specific denomination of Christianity. That might be your faith tradition. And you start to question some core values. Usually those core values, you're not questioning a core value if you are questioning uh, what day of the week Jesus was born. You know, most people in your church are probably like, ah, that guy thinks he was born on a Tuesday. I think it's Wednesday. You know, most people don't even care about this topic, right? So you're not going to get kicked out of your church or anything like that. Um, so the core values, when we talk about questioning core values of your faith tradition, they're the kind of questions that if you started to ask those questions and say, hey, I've come to a different conclusion, you'd probably get kicked out. So you might say, oh, I don't really think Jesus died and rose again. Big red flag in most churches, right? So that's a core value, big, big uh, question that has been asked. Um, but what gets questioned, which core values get questioned, is going to look very different depending on what tradition you come from, what kind of uh, faith background you're deconstructing. Um, it might look very, um, it might be very dependent on your experience within that faith tradition, right? So someone that's had maybe some form of spiritual or religious abuse in um, a certain environment will probably ask very different questions to someone that had a really healthy, enjoyable experience within church. Um, some people will be um, in faith traditions that focus obsessively about the end times, and that might make the end times a really big question for them and something that they really start to question and doubt. Um, but other people don't really give a crap about the end times is one way or another. Um, and so it really depends on the individual. You'll see big common threads are to do with the nature of God. You know, Christians historically have, have believed and said that God is love, <laughs> that God looks loving. He looks like Jesus. Um, but they also hold intention with that. A lot of stuff that really struggles to vibe with how a lot of people perceive an unconditional love these days. And so a lot of people start wrestling with that. They, they wrestle with the, like, ah, can I see God that looks like Jesus torturing people for zillions and zillions of years? You know, at a certain point, doesn't that just start to become a bit unloving? Does, even, even if you're about, like, getting everything weighing up on a justice scale, at a certain time frame, even Hitler's burned enough, you know, or even, you know, the worst person you can think of at certain billion years or whatever, you're like, okay, God's just being a bit vindictive here. Someone's going to ask that question and go, yeah, that doesn't seem to add up for me. Or does God really need to kill people to forgive like, is that actually, like, he, I mean, he makes up the rules. Why did he make up a rule where things have to bleed and things have to die? Um, he had to kill his son so he could forgive me. Couldn't he just forgive me? He expects me to forgive people and not kill anyone. Um, and so people start asking questions that some other people just never ask. And that causes them to deconstruct. Someone else might, maybe, maybe someone has um, a son who comes out as gay 
right? And you might have never really thought about that topic too much. You just accept it face value. Your church believes that gay people are, are, are wrong. They're going to go to hell if they practice homosexuality and practice any homoerotic acts. And, you know, and that's just the way it is. It's the, what the Bible says. But when you are faced with your son comes out as gay and you're like, well, I love my son and my son loves Jesus. And I know that Jesus loves my son. And I know they have a great relationship. So I'm torn now. I've got these questions that I never really thought to ask before. And, and now I'm looking at can God love gay people? Can being homosexual um, be okay? Can I affirm the LGBTQ community as a Christian? And then you start to find different answers and go, oh gosh, yes, yeah, some Christians think that's possible. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm starting to um, deconstruct that concept, that core value, because that would be a very big core value in a lot of churches, right? A lot of um, conventional churches would have a big problem with you saying, oh, I, I affirm the LGBTQ community. Uh, many of them are very, very anti that. Um, and so you'll find that it can be almost anything for certain people. Obviously, it's not going to be a very fringe idea. Um, and so these kind of peripheral things, even something like end times in a lot of churches, that's a peripheral thing, right? You can be like, yeah, like Jesus is coming back. I don't know when it will be, but he's, he's probably coming back. Whereas someone else is like, no, he's coming back before the rapture and it will look like this and it will last seven years. But really, those two people will survive in most churches pretty well. You know, they, they, they don't, they're not completely incompatible. But when one of them goes, uh, I'm not so sure Jesus was born of a virgin, that might be a bigger question. Or uh, I'm not so sure that this passage in the Old Testament is necessarily representing God very well. I don't think it's, I don't think that speaks of God at all. That's maybe a bigger issue. And so, you know, there'll be certain lines in different faith traditions where you have crossed a core value. And now you, you would, once you do that, you're starting to step into what deconstruction looks like. Um, but there's many, many reasons that occurs. just within a theological standpoint, an exegetical standpoint, eschatology, like you mentioned, or do these things like social justice, simply just watching the news, are those sort of the triggers for deconstruction as well? Sure. Like I said, with the mother that son comes out as gay, you know, any of these topics are going to be theological on some level, um, because that's how the church engages with the world is, is through some study of God and understanding of God and, and the world through that lens. But, you know, when you're faced with that very um, clear cut social justice issue, can we uh, affirm and celebrate someone who is uh, a lesbian, gay, bi, trans, queer, you know, whatever it might be? Uh, that's a pretty big issue to suddenly go, oh, I don't know. I, I don't know what I think now, and, and I'm, I'm questioning it. Y you might find that, um, you know, something like last year, huge, um, hugely uh, exploded onto the scene in a whole new way, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, that's a movement that's been going on for a long time. Most people outside the church, not unaware of racism. But it felt like a lot of people within church suddenly woke up to it to a whole new degree. Uh, I don't know if COVID had a degree of uh, interaction with that or what it was, but so many more people engaged with it um, on a level that they hadn't before. And there's all kinds of different things that might be at play there. But what did happen is a lot of people in the church were very involved and very uh, moved by the footage, by waking up and seeing that this is a, a systemic thing that's happening all the time and across the country and across the world, um, people of color, black, indigenous people of color are experiencing some form of racism 
almost every day in a whole host of different ways. And people were waking up and going, that is not okay. Now, of course, people of color weren't waking up to that. I think they've known all along. But white people in the church questioning that and going, hold on, that's not okay. And then realizing, huh, my church is actually now giving a message about how all lives matter or how blue lives matter, or they are completely ignoring the topic, or I'm flicking through my church website and realizing that every picture is a white person and every person that's on the leadership team is some white guy, right? And you start to go, oh, I'm questioning if we're a bit patriarchal and we're a bit white supremacists in some ways. These sort of things cause you to start to um, question core values of your church, right? So you start questioning these things. You'll find it very quickly if it's core value, right? Because you go to your pastor and say, hey, What's with the fact that we have nobody other than white people in charge here, even though our church maybe has quite a few people of different colors? Um, they would very quickly let you know whether that's a core issue or not by how they respond, right? You're going to find out really quickly whether you're, you're poking a hornet's nest or if they respond really graciously and go, oh, gosh, you're right. No, that is something we need to address. I hadn't thought of that before. You know, anyone can wake up to these things at any point, and we shouldn't judge people for not being aware. It's once we're aware, if we do nothing, that's where the, the, the problem lies. But I think you're, you're right. Social justice is a huge thing that can cause people to wake up. One of the things I've seen um, that has really accelerated this for a lot of people um, was the interplay of politics and religion. Trump being elected in 2016 and, and the, the evangelicals, 82% of evangelicals supported Trump. That was a huge issue for a lot of people who just couldn't reconcile that Christians were saying, this guy is God's person. <laughs> it was It's one thing for you to go, I'm a Republican and I think he'll be good for the economy or he'll, he'll do well for jobs or whatever it might be. That's one thing. But for you to then go, and I think he kind of, he represents my guy, God. That was the line where people stopped and went, whoa, whoa, whoa. Trump represents your God? I'm not sure we're worshiping the same God. You know, that, that makes me suddenly question, wait, so you think Jesus looks like Trump? Like, I have issues here. Um, and, and of course, when you push that hard enough, a lot of people will be like, well, hold on, I don't really think Jesus looks like Trump or, or whatever it might be. But, but 2016 was a real trigger for a lot of people to deconstruct because it, it highlighted a, a very, um, we might think of a lot of these things, social justice and politics as separate from theology, but it highlighted how interwoven they are with our theology and actually how warped our theology must be at some point for it to support some of these things, right? So, you know, look at the racism. Abolition of slavery was a theological issue. People on both sides were arguing theologically for either upholding slavery or abolishing it. Um, but it was a theological issue and it caused people to question, whoa, so if you think God supports slavery, I'm not sure I can support your God. Um, and we're, we're facing very similar things today in, in, in new and um, sometimes very tired and old ways as well. Um, but yeah, you're right. Social justice plays in heavily in, in, in a lot of people's journeys. Um, either it's the spark or it, it, it comes up as they begin that ball rolling. What you'll find with deconstruction is it can be a bit of an avalanche. So whatever your initial question, it's often rarely the only question. Right. And that leads to another question, which always happens. But what is the pace of deconstruction? If one thing leads to another and you really start to unravel, you start to take down this Jenga tower, for lack of a better term, but you start taking pieces out and you realize that maybe this thing doesn't have legs to stand on. <laughs> Is there a pace that comes with deconstruction or do people get overwhelmed with how much they actually need to take apart? Yeah, absolutely. It can be a very overwhelming process. I think the pace will look 
very unique to every person. Everyone's deconstruction is very unique. With that said, there's a lot of overlap in how people go about their deconstruction for sure. Um, and so, yes, someone can take it at a slower pace. Some people might ask questions and kind of find a bit of a satisfaction and go, oh yeah, I'm kind of comfortable. And then maybe a year later, some other questions come up. Other people, they ask one or two questions and it immediately brings up 12 questions. And it's like watching an episode of Lost, right? You start with like one question and by the end of like episode three, you've got 4,000 questions. Um, and it, you know that could really feel like deconstruction for a lot of people. And so it, it really does depend on the person and their circumstances, the, 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 the context they find themselves in but it can certainly be an extremely overwhelming process because what we fail to see is a lot of people look at this as a very like theological intellectual exercise but it actually while it can be that that's actually very secondary to what it is this is a very existential exercise you know we are intrinsically wrapped up with our theology with our ideas of what faith looks like what god looks like what church should be what is right or wrong in the world regarding our, our theology. You know, all that stuff, it intrinsically makes us who we are. Who I think I am is largely built on who I grew up to be in the church and what I believe about God and what God says about me and all these things that I might start to question, start challenging who I think I am. And then they start questioning, well, what is your role in this world? What is your purpose? This purpose you probably built while growing up in church is probably linked heavily to who you think God is, what you think God wants from you in the world. And if that starts unraveling, well, your purpose starts unraveling. And then you're losing, maybe your concept of God is changing. And so by nature, that relationship with God changes in the same way that if you found out your partner was a very different person than you thought, right? They had some sort of secret identity. Um, you might still love your partner, you might still know your partner, but the relationship would change based on a lot of new information coming out about this person. In the same way, when you change your concept of who God is and an understanding of who God is, that relationship is going to change. And that can be very hard. Um, and then you've got all your family and friends and they might not cope very well with you changing a lot of your beliefs. That can be really hard for them and in turn really hard for you. You might lose a lot of friends and a lot of family. You might be kicked out your church. And these are very common outcomes um, when people start to deconstruct their faith. Um, and so it's a very overwhelming process. It's a very hard process for people to go through on the whole, uh, very much so. And that brings up another thing to mind. You know, someone gets kicked out of their church, that's not unheard of. In fact, it's probably more common than most people think. How does the church typically respond to someone who's deconstructing, especially when that institution isn't interested in doing so? Yeah, I, I mean, there's a great breadth of, of ways people respond. And I think we can paint in broad strokes for sure. And, you know, deconstruction looks generally like this. The church's response is generally like this. This is not how all churches respond. This is not how all pastors deal with this information. But in general, um, people within church and within conventional Christianity they're not in a place to ask these questions. They're not asking these questions. They're not looking at it from this perspective. And so they don't really welcome other people that do so because um, generally speaking, to welcome someone else in to question some of these core things, like I said, they, this is wrapped up in who I am, my way of life, my my life choices, who I married, how I conduct my sex life, and uh, you know everything, what work I chose in life. All this stuff is so wrapped up in these beliefs that someone coming in and going, "Hey, I think some of these beliefs aren't right," and I'm not sure about them. They're not just questioning their own beliefs. 
on some level, just by sharing them to you, you're they're, they're presenting you with an opportunity to question your own beliefs and to doubt what you believe and to, and to find a bit of uncertainty and unsafety in what you believe. And we don't like that. We want to be safe and certain and secure. And so it's very natural for people in conventional Christianity to push that away, to, to, to push against it and to try and just not have to deal with it. It's a very, you know, I don't want to have to deal with these things if, if I don't have to. If I can keep believing what I believe and everything is great and wonderful, um, then that's what I want to do. And this is why I actually, I'm a very strong advocate for not trying to convert people or get people to deconstruct. I, I'm very um, vocal on the fact that people should only deconstruct when they're deconstructing. You know, if you don't need to deconstruct your faith, if your faith is working for you, it gives you life, it helps you feel connected to life and the world and your family and people around you and God, that's wonderful. Keep doing that. You might find at some point you hit a wall and you start asking a few questions and then you start to deconstruct. That might happen. You might also find you never deconstruct. And that's also wonderful. Whatever happens, it's wonderful. Um, it's all about people going on their individual journeys. But I do think on the whole, churches are not prepared because the people... Um, running those churches in leadership, generally speaking, if they're still there, aren't deconstructing. Some of them are. It's quite actually common that uh, leaders and pastors are deconstructing, but they can't do anything about it. They're kind of stuck in that system. Um, and, and they can't really um, engage with you if that is the case. Some of the leaders that are deconstructing or have deconstructed, they're able to come and sit by you and go, hey, that's awesome. I'm really glad that you're doing this. I can kind of help you along. I can let you know about resources and give you ideas and, and, and be there for you. Um, but it's pretty rare on the whole. Most people in leadership and pastor roles that deconstruct do try and find their way out of the church, generally speaking, because it's just not the best combo. Uh, you know, leading a hundred people that don't want to deconstruct as you deconstruct, it's, it's just a bad combo. You know, it's, it's, it's not fair on either party. Um, and so, yeah, most of the time the church does not do particularly well. They do tend to push people away. They try and cover it up. They try and tell them that, well, it's okay to question, but you've got to find your answers this way. And, and basically that means find the same answers we have. Um, you've got to find your answers in the Bible by reading it the way we read it. Um, you know, unfortunately, most conventional Christianity is a very black and white movement. It's very... Um, my way or the highway as far as how they perceive things and read things so they might point to absolute truths like the bible but they fail to see that you know you can read the bible a different way and and they would just go oh you're reading it the wrong way um but they might be reading it wrong way maybe i'm reading it right you know the, at the end of the day who's who's to dictate that other than maybe the pastor or the dom denomination head or you know your favorite person in history that uh, interpreted it this way it, it's it's very hard for them to engage with people that are living life in a little bit less of a black and white way or maybe have found themselves on the other side of that black and white divide that that in out divide um, and so generally speaking the church is going to push people away that start to deconstruct or try and write them off they'll, they'll use all kinds of language like backsliding uh, they were never saved anyway they were never serious about their faith all of these are very common myths but what's interesting about people that deconstruct is generally speaking, people that deconstruct um, attended church more often than the average person in church. They prayed more often than the average person in church. They read their Bible more often than the average person in church. They usually spend uh, more time in the church than the average person in church. They're more likely to be volunteers in church or staff members at church um, than the average person in church. Uh, they are more likely to have a Bible degree of some sort, theology, divinity, or have to gone to a Bible school or college than the average person in church. People that deconstruct, generally speaking, were deeper in the belly of beasts than the average person in church. And so these myths like, oh, they were never really saved anyway, or they didn't take their lives, their, their faith seriously, or they didn't understand the Bible. If only they read the Bible a bit better, they would be still saved. 
um, they're, they're very uh, tired excuses and they don't really measure up with any of the data. You know, uh, it's more likely to be a pastor or a pastor's kid, missionary kid, third culture kid. These people are more likely to deconstruct. And it's generally speaking because they took it more seriously. They were closer to the, the belly of the beast. They, they went after it harder and faster than anyone. And they ran into questions sooner than everyone else. Um, that's usually how it's uh, played out. As we paint this scenario, someone begins the deconstruction process. They start looking around at the world and they start seeing social justice needing to play a bigger part specifically within their faith. And they're not seeing that within their church. They bring it to their church and their church just sort of pushes them out as we've been talking about. And now they find themselves isolated. They find themselves alone. They have more questions than answers than ever before. What does reconstruction look like? How do you then begin to start putting things back together at a time when you've never been more unsure in your life? Sure. I mean, it's, it's a scary time to be taking things apart. You know, um, generally speaking, in, in psychology, we look at life in two stages overall, which is the stage where you develop your ego, you develop your worldview and you develop meaning. And then you get to a certain point in life and you just around your midlife crisis and you start to realize oh, a lot of this actually isn't giving me much meaning. And actually I have to start taking it apart and redefining what, what my life is about and who I am and, and maybe questioning a lot of who I think I am. Um, and a lot of that is what's happening in deconstruction. You know, we've, we've built a way of seeing God and, and doing life and whatever it might be, having a church. And then we start to question it and we start to take it apart. When we look at deconstruction, there's three metrics um, for someone that's deconstruction. So the first part I talked about was you question your core values of your faith tradition. The second part is that they don't add up. And so you have to change some of those core values. And then the third part is that you walk away with less certainty about what you believe now than what you believed before. Um, and so a core component of, of having gone through this process is you naturally will never be as certain as you used to be. And that's actually a healthy growth. Almost every um, metric on developmental uh, models for psychological growth suggests that as you grow up, you should become less certain, not more certain, right? How many times have you come across an old person and they're like, yeah, I used to be like that black and white when I was a kid, but you kind of learn a bit more of the nuance and the grays and it's not so black and white. You know, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, or, you know, maybe it's not either. And so as people develop and grow up, they generally speaking start to hold things a bit less tightly. That's not always the case. I've met some very fundamental older people. Um, but on the whole, we, as we develop and grow, we start to hold things less tightly. And so I think naturally letting go of things as, as rigid black and white beliefs is quite a helpful thing to do anyway. So I think that's a, quite an important part. I think often it's quite an immature position uh, of a need for a fundamental black and white outlook on life to want people that are starting to let go of that to come back to a fundamental position. So I think sometimes that's what's going on when a lot of people are seeing people deconstruct and go, oh, but you must, you must reconstruct. What they're saying is you must come back and start believing kind of a bit more certain things that I can kind of like uh, recognize and acknowledge. And, and even if I don't agree with it, I, I don't mind if you reconstruct something at absolute, because then I can at least absolutely discredit it. <laughs> but when you're going, oh, you know, well, it's a bit more complex than that. That's really hard to point the finger at and say whether you're in or out in my black and white world as a conventional Christian. So I think there's a part of that. But what I want to point out is in this deconstruction process, this is two stages, right? You question your core beliefs 
and then you change your core beliefs. So deconstruction is not just ripping everything apart. This is the problem with, the word deconstruction is quite a problematic word that's been used, to be honest with you, but it is the word that's being used and we're kind of stuck with it whether we like it or not. The, when we hear the word deconstruction, we just think about, you know, someone blowing up a tower block or something, you know, a high rise sky, skyscraper, someone presses the button and the whole thing comes down and they've deconstructed that building. And that can feel like a very <laughs> destructive, um, unhelpful process. Now, of course, it's a very helpful process if you need to clear that area and it's an old building, it's faulty and dangerous and we need to replace it with a new building. Um, but often that's not what's really particularly happening um, in the deconstruction process. When we get rid of a belief, no matter how big or small that belief is, we're automatically replacing it with a new belief. You, you, you can't not believe something. Everything is, is either believed or not believing something is a belief. You know, so even if I said I went from Christian to atheist, so I went from believing there is a theistic God to believing that there's probably no theistic being that is called God. Well, there probably is no theistic being that is God is a belief. I believe that. So deconstructing a belief in God is inherently a reconstructive process because I'm changing that belief for a new belief that says there is no God. Now, of course, that's an extreme kind of two polar opposite ends of the spectrum on what you can believe about God, okay? Um, so my point is, even in the most extreme example, I'm still, I'm not, I've not gone to having no beliefs. Atheists don't have no beliefs. They just believe something different. Um, so you can do the same if you shift from being a conventional Christian to a progressive Christian. Um, you, you're not throwing away all your beliefs. You are just naturally changing and shaping your beliefs. And so I think this understanding this is helpful for people because I think a lot of the language people are throwing around is going, this is a de destructive process. This is unhelpful. You're just going to fall apart and there's nothing there to stand on. That's not really true. People that deconstruct are in the process trying to figure out what can I stand on? What is a good foundation? They're questioning it and, and they're going to question a lot of things and they might find that not many things do hold their weight. Um, but they will find things that they go, no, this holds up. This is something I can hold on to. This is something I can believe in. Now, like I said, they're going to hold on to that belief lightly um, with some humility. I think actually deconstruction is quite a humble process and it's a humbling process um, because it says, well, I've been wrong in the past and this feels right. And it feels like I'm, I'm found something that's quite true and something I can hold on to, live, you know, work out. But I'm going to hold it lightly because I could be wrong and maybe I'll change in time. So let's not be too fundamental about this. Um, and so I think deconstruction is a reconstructive process. The, the, my concern with a lot of people's language or reconstruction is more often than not, it's quite a manipulative uh, process for a lot of people. The, the people you'll hear talking about reconstruction most of the time are people that are fundamental Christians. Um, and so more often than not, what they mean is it's okay for you to have doubts and to question but I need you to become fundamental again. I need you to rebuild something that makes me feel safe and ideally what I believe. But again, like I said, they don't even mind that too much. They don't even mind if you rebuild and become fundamental about something they disagree with because at least they can point to it and go, well, they're wrong and I can write them off. But when you're in that process of going, hey, this is more complex than that. I kind of do believe some of the things you believe, but I'm not going to hold to them as such a black and white position. And I kind of believe things that you don't believe, but I'm not holding on to them too black and white. That is a really problematic thing for someone that is very fundamental and wants to either welcome you in or push you away. Um, and so it, people that are deconstructing are very hard to place, um, but they are, they do believe in things. They do stand for things. It, it's not a position of not believing in anything. Um, and, and so I think there's just a lot of misconception around what deconstruction is as far as this community goes. 
um, because that's more of a how we might use the term deconstruction in a kind of construction sense. You know, if you, if you ask the builder what deconstruction is, they might tell you that. Um, but if you ask someone that studied this group of millions of people that are going through this process of deconstructing their faith, no one that's been in that process will say, oh yeah, they believe nothing. They, of course they believe lots of things. Some of them actually believe things more passionately and, and live life more uh, with zeal um, than they did when they were fundamental in a lot of ways. Um, and so they certainly have beliefs um, for sure. And so I think it's, it's dangerous to just write off deconstruction as like, oh, it's just an, intermedi an intermediate stage. And at some point you'll, you'll reconstruct, you'll build something new. Um, of course, the stages of going through that deconstruction where you go, oh, I'm not so sure, I'm a bit more sure, I've got more of an idea of what this might look like, I've got less of an idea of what this looks like. Absolutely, we all go through that stage. Um, but some Christians go through that stage, right, of not being so sure and being a bit more sure. I think that's just part of growing up and, and figuring things out as you go. Um, yeah, but I, I tend to be quite wary of people that offer reconstruction because generally speaking, deconstruction is not prescriptive. You know, so here's, here's what I'd say, actually. So this is a good point. When we talk, people say it's important they reconstruct. If you said to them, what is it important they reconstruct? They would, nine times out of 10, give you one option. This is what they need to reconstruct. They need to believe X, right? But what's interesting about deconstruction is that's not how it works. People don't end up in one place. When you look at deconstruction, people, when you look at atheism, it's people that believe you know, this one thing. When you look at Christianity, it's people that believe this one thing. I know there's subsets of Christianity, but we could figure out something broadly that includes them all. If you look at um, an Islamic person, you can go, oh, they believe this one thing. When you look at deconstructing Christians, they don't believe one thing. They believe a myriad of things. The commonality is not what does a deconstructing Christian believe. It's where is a deconstructing Christian coming from? So the commonality is not that they are moving to the same place, it's that they are moving away from the same place. And so the danger of that is that most people that are in fundamental positions and, and, and places of black and white thinking, they don't like that at all. They want to be able to point to this community and go, oh, they're all backslidden atheists. Oh, they're all on a journey to coming straight back and becoming just like us anyway. They're going to become re-evangelical or whatever the buzzword of the day is, excuse me. Um, and so I think, generally speaking, if someone's talking about reconstruction, they say, oh, no, it doesn't matter what they reconstruct. It doesn't matter if they become atheist or agnostic or progressive Christian or re-evangelical, if that's ever possible. I don't know who, who does that. Um, that doesn't matter as long as they, they find some ground to stand on. I'm like, oh, OK, you're talking about just them finding a bit more um, stability in their life. And I'm like, yeah, sure, that's great. But that's part of deconstructing. That's just part of the journey. And so that's wonderful. But if they're talking about I need them to become and th like me or think like me or think a certain way that's far too prescriptive and it doesn't work it, it just is not going to work in the deconstruction community because it is fanning out in a myriad of ways hundreds if not thousands of different outcomes um, and so you're not going to see a quote-unquote reconstructive process that fits the deconstruction community you just will not see it it's not possible and Phil, as we bring our time to a close, there's a myriad of things that we could do to step into a better understanding of this. But what would you recommend as one thing, just a first step in better engaging with a fragmented church? 
people who are deconstructing, people who are not, you know, how do we move together in unity, John 17 unity, so that we can actually function together instead of becoming these small factions? Yeah, it's a tough one, right? I mean, it has to come down to recognizing our our uh, common humanity. You know, that when God says, look, if you love this uh, homeless person over here, or this widow over there, if you love any of these other people, you're loving me, right? So there's, on some level, even a fundamental Christian can go, yeah, that deconstructing person, I'm, I don't, they make me feel uncomfortable and I don't like what they believe. But actually, for me to love that person is a way, in a way, I'm loving God by doing so. So hopefully there's something there that can help us bond and find uh, a common humanity within us. Um, but it's hard. It's really hard when, you know, I, I don't say this disparagingly when I say that con- conventional Christians are, they, they have black and white way of seeing things. It's, that's, that's helpful for them. It's good. It's, it's important for them. Um, and it gives them life. It gives them meaning. It gives them structure. It gives them direction. But it does make it very hard for them to become best friends with an Islam, uh, with an Islam, with a, with a Muslim, you know, someone in the Islamic community. It makes it very hard for them to become uh, best friends with someone that was a pastor and now has deconstructed their faith and identifies as agnostic. That's going to be really hard for them because in their black and white way of seeing things, they are out and I'm in. And, and that is hard. It's very, very hard to, to navigate. And so... I think people that are deconstructing need to have a lot of grace for that. They need to have a lot of compassion. And remember, that's how they used to see the world. And so I think it's very easy to look back and forget that we used to think like that and go, gosh, they're very like judgmental and exclusive. And it's like, no, no, that's, that's, how, that's how framing the world like that looks like. It's very hard for someone like that. And it's very important for someone that's in that place to recognize this might not always be serving me, right? It might not be serving me like the, like the mother that has a gay son and realizes, wow, me having a very black and white position on people that are gay means that I don't get to love my son properly and well. I'm going to have to think about that and, and maybe expand some of my, my, um, my ways of, of working in this world. And, and I do think that the challenge is there for people within the conventional church that they need to ask themselves, am I able to love people when I, when I think so clearly about in and out groups, saved, unsaved, believer, non-believer, Christian, non-Christian, I mean, that's just a normal way for a Christian to live. I notice. I used to travel around the world and speak in conferences and churches for like half a decade. I did that. And I've spoken thousands of churches around the world preaching a conventional Christian message to conventional Christians. I, I notice really well. I grew up a pastor's kid. I notice, right? So I'm not, I'm not pointing at it and going, that's wrong or look how bad that is. I'm just saying that's the way that that model works. And it has a lot of pros. But some of its cons are it doesn't play well with others at times. Um, and unfortunately, people that deconstruct become an other. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a challenge. And I think we are faced with um, some real problems that we're, we're going to have to weigh up hard. Um, right now, most of the conventional church is not doing well in that. They're, they're, they're pushing harder to try and push to make it clear that these people are not us. We do not support that. We do not agree with that. Um, you should not do that. Um, and so I don't know how you encourage people that see things so black and white that someone that's living in gray might not be the worst thing ever. Um, that's, that's a very hard thing to, to swallow. But I do think, you know, it's, it's happening one way or another. The, the deconstructing movement is the fastest growing spiritual movement in the West. The, 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 the church in the, in the US uh, and, and across the West of, of, of the world is shrinking. It's, there's no question in it. In America, it's shrinking. Every single movement in the church is shrinking, apart from evangelicals who are treading water. But evangelicals aren't saving new people. 
that's them just bringing in new people from the other movements that are shrinking much faster. But across the board, the church is shrinking. It's losing um, about 3,500 people every day, the church. Um, it's, it's, it's bleeding, hemorrhaging out. And these people don't lose faith. The people that are leaving, about 80% of them hold on to some form of faith. And so if we could hold a little bit of space as a, as a conventional Christian, if we could hold a little bit of space of looking at why are people leaving the church? Why are people questioning the faith in this way? And maybe is there some truth to what they say? Or even if I disagree with them, can I at least accept them as, as brothers and sisters that believe a little differently? Maybe like a Protestant might accept a Catholic and go, I don't agree with everything, but we're all kind of in this together, you know? And I know a lot of Protestants can't do that. I know a lot of Catholics can't do that. They struggle, you know? Um, but maybe if we could start to extend our, our grace a little bit more, um, we, might, we might have a bit of hope. But so far, the evidence is there that it's going to be hard for us. It's going to be very, very hard for us. Yeah, for sure. Well, Phil, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest. Can you tell our listeners how to connect with you online and where they can find you on Instagram? Sure. So Instagram is the best place to connect with me. It's just Phil Drysdale, just my name. Um, I'm always happy to chat on there on DMs. You know this well, Joey. We chat a little bit, but like, you know, you could chat on DMs, shoot me a message. I'm posting lots of things on there. I do Q&As. I put out lots of material. I put out our research on there as well. Um, if you are going through deconstruction, if that's what you're going through and you do feel lonely and isolated in that process, you can check out the deconstructionnetwork.com. It's a completely free resource. Everything I do is free. Um, so it's a free resource that helps you connect with other people locally. Um, and if you want to check out me in general, my website is phildrysdale.com. But between the Instagram and deconstruction network, you'll probably find everything you need to find. Our, our research is all on the deconstructionnetwork.com as well. That's awesome. We'll throw it all in the show notes. But again, man, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. That wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. Thank you so much for listening. You can connect with us on Instagram at dismantlepod or shoot us an email at dismantlepod at gmail.com. Until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. Mm-hmm.